Hey peeps, it's me, Christine, and I want to share with you a game-changing product that has improved my sleep and daily health. So let's dive in. You all know through my journey, I have struggled with sleep, being afraid of it, not getting quality sleep, and not being able to regulate my temperature throughout the night. I definitely learned the hard way, but sleep matters big time. It's when your muscles repair, your brain detoxes, and your body can work on cellular renewal. We just can't afford to miss out on an adequate amount of high-quality sleep, which is kind of hard when you have a rare disease. There's not much that I control in this real life, but one of the easiest and most effective ways to get better sleep every single night is through temperature regulation. Studies actually prove cooler temperatures lead to a deeper, more restful sleep, and that insomniacs actually lack this natural drop in core body temperature, which is what keeps them up at night. Personally, I run hot. This means that even if my room is super cold, I wake up in a pool of sweat, uncomfortable, changing my clothes several times throughout the night. It's frustrating for obvious reasons, and this is why I was so relieved to discover this transformative products from Chili. The Cube from Chili Sleep is a system that fits right over the top of your mattress and uses water to control the temperature of your bed, which helps lower your internal temperature and triggers deeper, relaxing sleep. Since water has 30 times more thermal conductivity than air, these systems are a lot more effective than just cranking up the AC. I mean, I keep my house at 65, so it has to be true. Ever since I started using the Cube system, I've noticed I fall asleep a lot faster, sleep deeper, and wake up feeling fully rested. (laughs) Now, my wife is not a polar bear like me and likes to sleep a little bit warmer, so I love that we can each have our own temperatures on either side of the bed. Chili products can range between 55 and 115 degrees. Right now, Chili is offering my audience a really great deal. When you go to chilisleep.com backslash findyourrare20, you get 20% off the Cube All Sleep Systems with Find Your Rare 20. Sleep is something we could all use more of, and we can all take small steps towards getting better sleep to improve our life in big ways. I hope you'll check out the Chili Sleep System and see why I love their product so much. Hey peeps, we are back for another episode of Because We Are Strong. Today, Heather Hutchinson, award-winning singer and songwriter and author, is here with us. Heather shares her story of life as a blind person to bring awareness and help others. Her love for music has been a refuge from her mental health struggles. She really needs no introduction. I'm your host, Christine, so let's dive in. This is the Because We're Strong podcast, where we sit down every week to get your stories and insight on how to navigate this rare life. You can expect everything real and raw in the hopes that your story, along with ours, helps another person who is dealing with a similar rare struggle. So grab your favorite drink, a comfy blanket, and buckle in, because rare disease isn't for the faint of heart. Heather, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you so much for having me. So Heather, I'm so excited to have you for so many reasons, Um, but can you um, just, I guess, uh, introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit about your rare journey. For sure. Like you said, I'm a singer-songwriter. I have three albums out to date and I'm actually working on another one like literally as we speak today. So that's really exciting. That is really exciting. (laughs) I know. I'm super stoked on it. And um, 
my new memoir just came out recently. It's called Holding On by Letting Go. And it basically chronicles my journey and my life as a blind person in Canada and Latin America with kind of this parallel theme of my mental health struggles since I was really young, which ultimately culminated in me being hospitalized for psychiatric care during the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. So it really kind of dives into that and what that was actually like, you know, going behind those locked doors to kind of strip away the mystery for people. You know, and I think you bring up such a great point because, right, honestly, a lot of people, in my opinion, right, have this idea of one flew over the cuckoo's nest as (laughs) this idea of what um, being hospitalized truly means. And so, you know, if you don't mind sharing what, mental health struggles do you personally face and what does it look like for you? Because it does look so different for everybody. Yeah, for sure. So for me, I think anxiety started first, like social anxiety, generalized anxiety when I was probably about seven. And then from there, you know, I started having panic attacks. And, you know, when you're seven, you don't really know what's going on. You just kind of think you're dying, right? (laughs) Because you have no idea. And I think that kind of really led to my depression, which really kind of started in my early teen years, because I think with the anxiety, like you just don't want to feel like that all the time anymore. So you're kind of looking for a way out. And that's when the depression comes in. So I've struggled with anxiety and major depressive episodes for the majority of my life. How would you say, um, you know, because you didn't, you brought up a great point. When you're a kid, you don't really know what's going on. And, mm-hmm. you know, childhood anxiety and depression does not look like adult child, uh, adult depression and anxiety. And so now that you've kind of experienced both in that transition, what is your thoughts on, you know, the difference of the two and, like what that experience was like? I think childhood anxiety, well, I think it's unfortunate and I hope that it's changing. But when I was a kid, it was really chalked up to like, oh, you know, she's just an anxious kid. She'll grow out of it, which I think is really unfortunate because I think when we're having that anxiety as a child, that's the time to try and change these patterns, right? And these habits, because the longer it goes on, is like any illness, the longer it goes on, you know, the harder it can be to potentially treat. So I think, yeah, a lot of like childhood anxiety can just be chalked up to this like, oh, you know, like it's just a phase or whatever. And, you know, when it's, when you're struggling with anxiety as an adult, it's, you know, suddenly less socially acceptable, I guess, and suddenly less of a phase. This is so that this is this what you just like, honestly, gave me chills, because what I the dynamic you just described was like, okay, you'll grow out of it when you're Mm -hmm. like, that's how we project onto children, right? Which like you said, completely so dangerous. But then as adults, right, we then society or whoever tells us, right, it's almost like they force you to grow out of it, quote unquote, because it's no longer accepted. It's like, yeah, it's not a something that I guess. And you're right, right? Like, you know, we're 70. I think you are our 75th episode that will probably air right around there. And this is the first time we have a full episode dedicated to mental health. We talk about it. We accept it on here. But like, you know, I when I read your in like your form, I was like, I love that she identifies her rare with mental health because like, yes, yes, yes. 
Yeah, yeah, totally. Because it isn't somebody. Well, it's kind of weird for me because, you know, there's that like invisible kind of, you know, quote unquote disability, if you want to call it that. And then I also have like a very visible one. So it's kind of a weird mix for me. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Because like, right, a lot of people talk about the invisible struggles and things that aren't seen. And then it's like a double whammy in the sense that like, well, then you have this very visible thing. And like, how is that, I guess, like combined and correlated throughout your life and education, right? And like how people would treat you? Yeah, it's, it's hard because the one can kind of almost exacerbate the other. So, you know, if you're anxious, if you struggle in social situations, and then you go out into public and somebody stops you in the grocery store to ask what it's like to be blind or, you know, just ask really, oh, were you born like that? Like super personal, like medical questions. And you're already struggling with social anxiety and depression, which people aren't seeing, then that just kind of makes it all worse and all culminates in this, you know, even more, I guess, anxiety and depression because you can't walk out the door without somebody, you know, staring at you or saying something stupid or asking questions that they really have no business asking. No. Wow. That is, it's so funny. Like I didn't, you know, put that, I have like social anxiety, right? Like, and and I have an invisible disease. So for me, everything's invisible. I didn't even put that like I, I literally was thinking like my heart started jumping when you talked about walking out of the house and somebody coming up to you directly. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, I feel that. I I never thought, I never made that connection. And yeah. um, that's just, that's a big one. So this is all going on in your life and, you know, the pandemic's hitting and not only is the pandemic hitting, right, but you're going through, like you said, going through the door of like the cuckoo's nest or like mm-hmm. that, like you know, you're at the door of where you needed that. Um, I guess one half, what was the like straw that broke the camel's back, if you will? I know it's a million little things, but what yeah. got you there? And then do you want to demystify some, some of, uh, you yeah, know, totally. The, that would be awesome. So what got me there? That is, that is such a hard question. And it's a question, you know, I, constantly ask myself (laughs) still I think you know I'd had a a really bad major depressive episode um the year before and I was getting help for it they increased my outpatient supports they you know played around with my medication made adjustments in that way and then the pandemic hit and I wasn't far enough into recovery to be able to deal with that on my own because all of a sudden, you know, the world's, we don't know what's going yes. on. And I can't, you know, my doctors, my therapists, they aren't accessible in the same ways as they were before. You know, they, the appointments are are further apart. We're just meeting by phone. We don't even have video appointments. So they didn't really see what was going on to really intervene, I guess. And and honestly, I, as a therapist, I didn't have any tools for my clients, which no. was really scary because like everything I w- may have told them was no longer accessible. So I think like, yeah. you know, like, yes, that is such a, like a powerful point. Yeah. Yeah. So it just, you know, went, got worse and worse and a big thing for me in 
my anxiety and things like that is to have control. Like I'm a total control freak. And you know, this pandemic hit, nobody has control over anything. So I'm like, what am I going to do? You know, I'm not getting the supports I need. I'm really regressing. I am not eating. You know, by the time I got to the hospital, I was 30 pounds less. They weighed me and I was 30 pounds less than what my lowest weight guess would have been. So like, yeah. And, um, So I think that was, you know, part of the reason they kept me in because I was physically so ill by that point. But yeah, a big thing for me was control. And so I thought, well, what can I still control here? I can control how and when I'm going to die. And that's about it. So I made plans to die. I got everything, all my affairs in order and everything like that. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to go to the hospital And just see what they say. And I wasn't going to get better. I was going because I wanted absolution, because I wanted my family and friends, you know, when I was gone to be like, well, she tried, right? And I think it was kind of a thing to myself, too, to be like, see, I told you there is no hope for you. So I went to the hospital and the whole expect, my expectation was that they were going to be like, oh, you're fine, send you home. And then I could, you know, go forward with my plans. Obviously, it didn't work that way because I was um, admitted as an involuntary patient and and held there. So until things did start to, to get better. Wow, Heather, thank you. I mean, I just, like I said, I think it takes such a person to like say this. Um, and, you know, um, I resonated so much when you said that absolution, like I wanted everyone to know that like I did it or like the see, I told you there was no hope. Mm -hmm. Like there was, I didn't have another option because I think many people even listening have probably been in that position where, you know, it's what can I control? And, you know, and that absolution point to know that, you know, it was in a way I did the right thing, right? Like I, um, I tried everything I possibly could to get better and it, it wasn't an option. So, when you get, you get there and you're surprised. Cause right. Like that's not how it happened. No. Um, <laughs> what was it like, you know, the experience of like getting, um, you know, involuntarily, you know, placed. It was shocking. I guess I remember they allowed my partner to go with at the time they weren't letting anybody into emergency because of COVID like any family or anything. But Another complicating let, factor. Yeah, exactly. But they let him accompany me like so that he could guide me, I guess. And um, so we went into this other part of the emergency room where they hold people who are experiencing acute mental health crises. It's called psychiatric emergency. And I just remember getting admitted after talking to the the psych nurse. So I talked to her, the crisis nurse, and then she said, okay, we're going to page an ER doctor because I, I think it's different everywhere, but there's this like common misconception that like anybody can have you committed, you know, like your family member or whatever. And it doesn't like they, it has to be a physician that fills out. Yeah. Forms. It does not work like that. No, it doesn't. But yeah, like people have this like weird fear that like their family members are going to commit them or something. And it just doesn't work that way. They can't just, you know, take away your freedom just because. So yeah, they, so they paged this doctor and I talked to her and she told me, yeah, you're you're not going home today. And so my partner had to leave at the point that I was admitted. 
And there was like this big, heavy metal door that locked automatically. So I remember him walking out of that door and it just like slamming shut. And then the kind of like electronic noise as the lock engaged, like locking me in with him on the outside. And it was just like, okay, I've come to whatever happens from here. This is, this is the end of this road. Wow. That's literally metaphorically like... So I like envision that and, and and feel like I can understand why you're like, this is the end of this road. And for you, was that like the turning point, like this, the end of this road, like in terms of, um, you know, no law, like wanting to survive or have control in a different way? No, not yet, because I was still kind of thinking, okay, they'll let me out tomorrow. You know, this is just a minor inconvenience. So no, it actually, it took a couple days. And what actually ended up happening was I was, I got transferred to a different psych unit, the inpatient um, psychiatric unit, IPU. And I was laying in bed one night and they brought in somebody by air ambulance who was in critical condition. And as soon as they got there, they called a code blue. And I was laying there in bed thinking, my God, like this person's, their poor family, their poor loved ones, they've got to be having one of the scariest nights they will ever know. And I thought to myself, how can I be feeling so much compassion for this person's loved ones while knowing the decision I want to make is going to devastate my own? And then I started thinking about the patient and thinking this person is here fighting to live and I'm here fighting to die and I have a choice and I can choose. And it it was just like, okay, I have to make this choice in this moment. I can bide my time here and wait until I can get out and then go through with my plan to kill myself or I can live and I can tell my story and I can share it and I can try to use it for some, you know, bring something positive out of this really, really difficult situation. Wow. And that's exactly, honestly, what you've done. I mean, between your book and your songwriting, before we get into your advocacy work, though, I, what was it like? So then that transition, that mind shift, right? Because I'm sure then you were more open to like the resources at the hospital. Yeah. But then there's a transition home, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and what was, what was that like for you? Yeah, the transition home was probably the hardest part. I remember them always saying, you know, the hardest part of, you know, the real work starts when you get home. And it's so true because you don't have the psychiatrists and the psych nurses and everybody reminding you 20 times a day of, you know, healthier cope, coping strategies and patterns and things like that. So you're going home to the environment that, you know, initially precipitated this whole, you know, your reason for being in the hospital and you're back there and you have to make a choice to try and choose healthier ways. So yeah, it's, I think that the hospital is honestly the easy part in, in some ways, like, no, it wasn't pleasant. And, you know, that turning point was kind of, things got worse after that before they got better because I was actually you know before then I was just so shell-shocked and I wasn't 
you know, I was compliant and everything, but I wasn't really like into Going my the treatment plan yeah. or anything. Yeah. So then afterwards, I actually started to like really cooperate and be an active participant in my treatment plan, which was hard because then it brings up all this grief and all, all those kind of things. So yeah, that part of the hospital stay was hard. And then getting home and being back in that environment, you know, you have the freedom to make poor decisions and you have to, you know, nobody's there to protect you anymore, to keep you safe from yourself. So you have to, you know, use those resources and those tools that you've learned to do that on your own. And is that where like the singing and songwriting and and writing came in? Yeah, the singing and songwriting has been a part of my world like forever. My first album came out was when I was 16. So I've been doing that for a long time and it's always been super helpful for me, you know, because I have struggled for so long to have that that outlet was always really helpful. But before I went into the hospital, I actually wasn't doing anything creative. I know like a lot of my friends and my colleagues were you know, doing these online concerts and things like that and writing songs to motivate people to get through COVID and things like that. And I just couldn't, like, I was just trying to get through the next day, the next hour, the next minute. So I actually wasn't being creative at all until I got out of the hospital. And then I just had this, like, need to write everything down as soon as I could so that it would be as fresh and as real as I could possibly make it. So yeah, so the book came first, which was different for me, obviously, because that that's my first book. And then the um, the songs and things actually kind of came after. And that's been kind of what I've been working on the, the past couple months. And I would say the songs that I'm writing now are kind of like my book in music format. Oh my gosh, I love that. So I know you may not know me that well yet, Heather, but I'm pretty much like <laughs> the queen of like awkward, I call myself. And I, <laughs> I have to ask, you know, with such a powerful voice, would you mind singing us a little something from like what you've been working on? Sure. Um, ah, so cool. <laughs> let me think. Um, maybe I'll do something like a, a line or something off my my older album because I'm kind of worried that if I try to do like new material I'm gonna like totally forget no 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 do whatever you feel comfortable with (laughs) okay I'm awakened by your teardrops in the shadow light of dawn we know it there's no secret we don't have too long (laughs) oh my god Everyone, thank God in the show notes, I put where you can find Heather's music because if you were listening, that was the most beautiful thing I have ever heard. I'm a big lyrics person, but gosh, your voice is so soothing. And I do not say that about anyone besides Taylor Swift. So that's a very oh, <laughs> Thank you so much. You know, wow, um, Heather, you are you are truly amazing and you're taking, you know, everything that's like you're experiencing it and you're making it your own and you're, you're figuring out, you know, one day at a time, how to make this world like a little bit of a better place. And I can't see, like, I can't wait to see what's coming next in this, in your next album. Where can people find you if they wanted to like connect with you and, um, you know, follow your journey? 
Yeah, so they can go to my website at www.heather-hutchison.com, H-U-T-C-H-I-S-O-N, and all my social media links are there. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. Uh, my music is on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, basically anywhere you listen to music. And my book as well is basically anywhere you get books, you know, Amazon, Apple, Apple Books. Um, I am literally on the, like, I'm literally on Amazon right now getting a copy of your book. Oh, thank you so much. So, um, as always, friends, I went ahead and linked those um, down in the show notes. Uh, you'll you'll definitely hear me playing some music on my stories because this, this woman's amazing. Uh, thank you so much, Heather, for being here today, uh, sharing your story. And honestly, thank you for choosing to live because your voice and your strength would be missed in this world. Uh, thank you so much. And thank you so much for giving me the, the opportunity to share my story today. As always, thank you to our listeners who tune in every week as we bridge the gap between rare disease and the rest of the world. Until next time, live large and stay rare. Catch us next week for another episode. To continue the conversation about rare disease and all the unknowns that comes with it, join our Facebook group. Want even more rare? Become a VRP member on Patreon and learn more about our stories or how to share yours by visiting bwspod.com.